Note-taking, super important. Two, the same way that Alan, uh, a few weeks ago, was teaching a message out of uh, basically the outline from a Norm Geisler book, a lot of my points and concepts are coming directly from C.S. Lewis's The Problem of Pain. Um, a lot of them are coming pretty directly from that book. I'm quoting him five times tonight. I'm using a couple of his illustrations because his thought on the subject is completely brilliant. So rather than come up with my own, I'm going to use what makes sense and what seems true. So if you're lost by the end of it and you're like, Brian isn't as good as C.S. Lewis, I agree. So you can pick up the book and you can also read it for more info. Third, when we are talking about the problem of pain, uh, I am not referring to physical pain. Uh, I am not referring to when people pinch you. I am referring to mental, spiritual, emotional, uh, the things that we talk about when we say that somebody is suffering. Uh, when somebody is suffering something, we don't necessarily mean that they are, you know, oh, that guy, you know, his, his knee fell off, he's suffering. Like when we think of suffering, well, that, that probably would be suffering. But we don't, we don't mean it in the physical sense where it's like, oh, I burnt my hand on my coffee. I am suffering. Or like even worse, like I got my pumpkin spice latte and it was the first one and my tongue is burnt and now I can't taste it right at the front of my mouth. I am suffering. That's not what I'm referring to. I'm referring to a more general, broad type of suffering. If you have a Bible, open up to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. We're going to be using a couple passages in John uh, we're going to end up for the night in 2 Corinthians, and I may have you flip over to James at one point. So we're going to do a little bit of bouncing around, but I'm going to do my best to give the scriptures to you so that if I see that you guys are really flipping around a lot um, and it's slowing you down, I don't want that to happen. So I'll make sure that I'm telling you guys where you're going. I am going to have so much fun. I have no idea whether you guys will, but I really don't care. So I'm going to have a great time. Let's see what happens. This is fun for me already. Let's pray, and then we will go from there. Father, we come before you tonight, and we are looking into an extremely deep and complex question. We're looking at a question that the world is asking, and we're looking at a question that if we're honest with ourselves, many times we ask too. We don't fully understand always how this works. We don't fully understand how all of this goes, but we know, Lord, that we have been called to give a defense for the hope that is in us. And so, Lord, I pray that tonight you would move in each of our hearts and that you would reveal to us why it is that there's pain and suffering, that you would reveal to us what it is that you want to do through it, and you would reveal to us the greater working of what it is that you do uh, through all of creation, not just the parts that are agreeable to us. We pray, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to be in this room, I don't want this to be my words, Lord, because my words aren't going to get us anywhere. But your words are truth and life, and we are fed by them. And so I pray, Lord God, may you inhabit this room tonight. It's in the great name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Every day we seem to get another picture of just how broken the world is. It seems that every day there is something new in the news. There's some new story there's some new terrible event that has happened that reminds us of just how broken the world is. In this past month alone, I've been looking through different news stories about terrible things that have gone down. Just in this past month, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through a few of them. Uh, they're moderately depressing, and by moderately, I mean terribly. Um, there was a church in Pakistan where uh, a, an Islamic suicide bomber came in 
and did what it is that he came in there to do. And because of that, 75 people are dead. Random church service. Think if that happened here. That'd be like 90% of us. Just suicide bomber walks in, does his thing, the bomb goes off, and 75 people are dead. And everybody is wondering, these people are supposed to be serving God. These are the Christians. And they're the ones that are getting destroyed. They're the ones that are getting hurt. Where's their God to save them? What's going on there? There was a mall in Kenya where terrorists showed up and decided they were going to take it over. And when they took it over, they started opening fire and 65 died in that opening fire. This happened like four or five days ago, I'm pretty sure. I saw it, I think it was this Monday when this happened. Out of nowhere, people just showing up to a mall, people just looking to buy whatever it is they were planning on buying, and now 65 people know a lot more about eternity than we do because they were brought there just like that. Uh, even a few weeks ago, there was the shooting in the Navy Yard in D.C. To have it hit a little bit closer to home, uh, this is one that was really interesting for me. My brother was working in D.C. that day. He was working particularly in the White House. Before you think his job is really cool, he's a sound guy. Um, so he just like makes speakers work. He wasn't like, yeah, Mr. President, I would like to be your friend. Like, he wasn't doing anything like that. But while he's there, my brother was on lockdown for two hours. He was never in any danger. But one guy, one moment, one bad decision, 13 people brought into eternity instantly. Where is God in that moment? What do we do with that situation? Let's bring it to our own state now. In the city of Union, there was a guy who was hit while he was riding his motorcycle, and the person got out of their car, saw that he was dying, and left. Decided they didn't want to deal with the circumstances. Decided they didn't want to deal with that. That guy's family now has to figure out what to do. In a moment, gone. We have, if you go a little bit further back, you get the Colorado flooding that happened. Initial reports had a thousand people missing. Now thank God it has not been that bad where thousands are gone. Um, eight are confirmed dead. Six are still missing. But the flood spread over 200 miles of Colorado. Um, if there is any group of people in this world that can feel for people that have gone through flooding, it's us. Having gone through Sandy, keep that in mind, less than a year ago. That was less than a year ago. The, the shooting that happened in Sandy Hook, that was also less than a year ago. That was just over nine months ago. The bombings that happened in Boston during the marathon, that was less than six months ago. And these things, because there are so many of these moments, they are ancient history to us. They are so far removed that we just don't even bother about them. But every single time one of these things comes up, everybody is forced to ask, where is God in this? What could he possibly be doing? And this is a question that not only the world has, but I would probably argue many of us in this room have where we see these things go on and we wonder, why is God letting that happen? Now, if I just were to ask you guys right now, why does our God allow evil in this world? How many of you believe that in this moment you could give a clear, concise, accurate answer that you would sit down afterwards and be proud of? I'm hoping there's at least one. I'm not going to bring you up here and have you do it. Okay, Ivan. So I say that to bring this point up right from the beginning. This is a difficult topic for anyone. This is a topic that just because we are Christians, we can't show up and claim, oh, well, it's because of this. Calm down. 
No. This is a really, really big topic that we're diving into. And so because of that, we have to tread very humbly. We have to come into these conversations where people ask us, why is there evil in the world? Why is your God allowing suffering? We have to come into these conversations very, very humbly. In 1 Peter, when it tells us to be ready to give a defense for the faith and the hope that is in us, it tells us to do so with all meekness, with great humility. And so as we begin to tackle this question tonight, I have you open up to John chapter 9, and we're going to begin in verse 1 and analyze a very, very popular story in the Bible that I am confident the majority of you are aware of. We begin in verse 1, and it tells us this. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. I'm sure that many of you have heard this story. I'm sure that this is familiar to most of you. If you're a freshman, you may have even been in Ignite when we taught this. It was only a few weeks ago. Um, or it was, I don't know when it was, never mind. Um, regardless, we come to this story, and the thing that we must be struck by right away is that when the disciples ask this question, who sinned? They are making an assumption about God's design for the universe. They are making an assumption right from the beginning that the universe works in this retribution style. You mess up, you get smacked. Done. It's kind of like playground justice in their mind. Somebody does something you don't like, you tackle them. You're done. If you're a girl, I don't know if you did that, um, but I hope so, because that would make playgrounds way cooler. But this was, this was our style of justice. Somebody does something you don't like, you smack them on the face. You go on from there. Or at least that was what I had with my brother, only I never smacked back because I was terrified. This is their view of the universe but as they're asking this, they're questioning it. They're not simply accepting what it is that they think they're asking. Why is it this way? How did it come to be this way? There's a, there's a whole lot of thought going into this question. It's more than just they saw a blind guy and they're like, hey, Jesus, why is he blind? Like there, there's a lot more concern to hear the answer. And in many ways, when we ask the question, which I will give in its simplest terms right now, we're doing the same thing. The question we are strictly tackling, why does an all-powerful, all-loving God allow evil and suffering in the world? The phrasing of that is, is important for the most part. There's a few words that you can play around with. But here's what we're really tackling, that an all-powerful, all-loving God allows evil to exist in this world. Now that, on the face of it, is exactly what the disciples did back in that moment. A question about the design of the universe. It is a question about the world that we currently inhabit. And what's interesting about this question is that the moment we hear it, there's something in us that kind of like tightens up because we know how big this topic is and we know how much it means to a lot of people and we know how angry people get because of it. But let's stop and think for a moment. Here's the, the logic that's going on. There is an all-powerful God, one. There is an all-loving God, two. 
There is evil in the world, three. Where's the contradiction? This is the first thing we've got to look at. It sounds like this impenetrable fortress the moment we hear it, but where is the contradiction? That's the first thing we've got to ask ourselves. When you really think about it, there is no inherent contradiction to that. What do I mean by inherent contradiction? It's not like saying that somebody is a married bachelor. Like, that is impossible by its very nature. That is impossible from the outset. Um, it's not like saying a round square. It's not like saying that at all. Those are things where, by their very definition, they cannot exist. It does not make sense. The same way it does not make sense for you to ask me what I got for my daughter's third birthday. It makes no sense. I have no daughter. She has no birthday. So you can't ask that question about me. It is a nonsense question. It means nothing. That is what we are looking for when we are looking for inherent contradictions. We're looking for that moment where one and the other cannot exist at the same time. And we don't find that in the question that we're trying to answer tonight. There is nothing inherent in there being an all-loving God and an all-powerful God that means evil cannot coexist. There is nothing in that right from the onset. When we tackle this question, we need to tackle it in two different ways. There is the intellectual side of it, and then there is the emotional side of it. There's the intellectual side and the emotional side. Right now, I am referring to the intellectual side. I am referring to the, let's just think about it logically and completely detach our feelings from it. Let's handle it like that. When we do that, we find no inherent contradiction. So then where do we go from there? No, I, very rarely are you going to be like, well, actually, that's not a contradiction. And the people that you're having this conversation with will say, oh, you're right, I agree. Like, there's more to it that we have to go into. We still have to answer why then all of this happens. And in verse 3, Jesus gives his response to why this evil has occurred. And he said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the work of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. Now to unpack this or to look into this, I hate using the phrase unpack. I'm so sorry I did that. None of you care, but it really bothers me. Um, when, we, when we really look into this, the, the response of Jesus is far more interesting than it might seem. And the response of Jesus might at first sound a little evil. It might at first sound a little off. Neither this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. It sounds really wrong if Jesus is running around putting people in horrible situations so that he can fix them. It sounds really wrong if God is running around saying, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make you blind, and I'm going to give you cancer, and I'm going to put you in this terrible situation, and then I'm going to let you hang out there for a while and I'm going to let you suffer all of these different things, and then I'm going to fix you. And then you're going to be like, wow, God can fix people. Like, a God who breaks things so that he can fix them is equivalent to a kid who puts out the fire that he starts and looks for everyone to praise him as a hero. You know, if you mess up and you start the fire and then you put it out, you did your responsibility. You didn't necessarily do anything fantastic. And so what I am arguing is that this is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying, neither this man sinned nor his parents, but I let him be broken so that I can later fix him. 
What I would say Jesus is saying is this. When he says, neither this man sinned nor his parents, that is his response to the disciples' question. Who sinned, this man or his parents? Neither one of them. It's not that way. That's not how I built this world. But that the works of God should be revealed in him, I will redeem a situation of brokenness. You see, we have to talk about, we're going to talk about each of the three parts of the question. All-powerful God, all-loving God, the existence of evil. Let's begin by talking about all-powerful. There's an assumption that we make when we say that God is all-powerful. And that assumption is that all-powerful means God can do anything that he wants. And that is not what all-powerful means. The assumption is that God can do anything at any time, at any moment. God can do anything, sort of. Because there are certain things that are inherently impossible. If you look back on those inherent contradictions, the concept of a married bachelor makes no sense. And so God cannot create a married bachelor But that is by no means a limit on his power. Does that make sense? God cannot create a round square because a square by definition is not round. It is inherently impossible. That does not limit his power at all because at no point will we be in a situation of our lives saying, God, I just just need you to make a round square right now. It would just help me so much. Like We'll never find that moment. We'll never find that moment where we say, God, if only you could do what was inherently impossible, then I could serve you more deeply. We're never going to run into that moment. And so because of that, we are not going to run into a limit in God's power because he is limited by impossibility. Now, why do I bring that up? I bring that up to talk about the fact that God desires relationship. God very, very greatly desires relationship. In Jeremiah chapter 3, he says to the nation of Israel, Return, O backsliding children. He refers to them as children there. Says the Lord, For I am married to you. All of these different relationships he is using to illustrate his love for the people of Israel because it cannot be bound up in one illustration. It needs to be talked about in various ways. In Jeremiah 31, it also says, The Lord has appeared to me of old, saying, Yes, I loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. God cares very, very deeply for relationship. And for relationship to exist, there are two essential requirements that I want to talk about very, very quickly. The first is the concept of a fixed nature. The first thing that is necessary for relationship is a fixed nature. What do I mean by that? Imagine two just like unembodied minds trying to meet each other. It just gets really weird and gross in your head in like six seconds. Like I was doing that earlier. I was like, that would be, oh, that'd be gross. Brain matter everywhere. Like it gets really gross really quick. Whenever we picture two people meeting, there has to be some sort of fixed nature in which they meet. You and I can only play a game of chess if we play by the rules. The fixed nature of the game of chess is what allows us to interact with each other on that level. The fact that there is only one way that it goes allows us 
to interact with each other. Because eventually, imagine you're playing with your little brother or your little sister, or maybe you're like me and you were the little brother or you were the little sister. Eventually, you reach the point where you're playing chess or you're playing checkers, and you just like hate the rules. You're just like, no, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to jump all of your pieces at once. I win. Like Maybe your, your siblings or your parents let you do that because you were little and cute and they didn't want to crush your spirits, but you were no longer playing chess. The interaction that was supposed to be happening no longer happened. So in the same way, this world has to have one fixed nature. Now, does that mean that God can't override it? Absolutely not. It means that he certainly can override that nature, but if the nature is fixed, that overriding has to be the exception, not the rule. If God is overriding all of our decisions, if I pick up a bat and I swing it at somebody, and the moment I go to hit them with it, it turns into like marshmallows and it just covers them in warm, gooey, white love, like if that happens, my chance to hate them is taken away from me. That fixed nature changes the type of relationship that I can have with them. It's the nature that has to be fixed because if it is fixed, that allows for charity. It allows for courtesy. It allows for graciousness. If this slice of pizza can only go to one of us, that's what enables me to be generous towards you and allow you to have it or be selfish towards me and take it myself. Does that make sense? Okay, a fixed nature, I'll, I'll move on from that. The fixed nature is what you relate through. It is what you use to relate to each other. So God desiring relationship fixes nature in one way. That is one requirement of relationship. Otherwise, you have nothing to relate through. The other requirement that I want to bring up is the simple concept of free will. Free will is necessary for relationship. Gentlemen, the girls in this room are not waiting for the man who will come sweep them off their feet and threaten to kill them if they don't marry them. They're looking for the person that they choose. I'm, girls, am I, am I right on that one? Or are you? Okay. There's, there's something about the fact that you can choose elsewhere that makes choosing to be in one spot worthwhile. You know, if there was only one way to go, there's really no choosing to do it. There's no significance in it. You know, the thing that makes a marriage special is that two people choose to be with each other for the rest of their lives. And, and the thing that makes it even more special is that through their lives, they are presented with opportunity after opportunity to choose to go in other ways, and they deny those ways. For there to be any real relationship between two people, there has to be the choice for that relationship to not exist. There has to be the opportunity for that relationship to not exist exist. C.S. Lewis said it like this, if souls are free, they cannot be prevented from dealing with problems by competition instead of courtesy. If there is the ability then in this fixed nature to choose in different ways, that is what allows for real love to occur. Because when you are then loving someone, you are not doing what you just simply have to do, you are choosing then to do it. Does that make sense? I'm hoping so. So God in his omnipotence, in his all-powerfulness, is not creating this weird system where he's just moving everything around. He's given us a pretty fixed nature. When miracles come, they're the exception, not the rule. That's what allow us to understand our world. And in giving us free will, it's something that he is inherently designed. God cannot then 
Give us a world where we both have free will and do not have it. It can't be both simultaneously because that's just simply a nonsense sentence. You know, we can't say that just because we put the phrase God can at the beginning of the sentence that we've struck upon some deeper truth. There either is free will or there is not. And so if there is free will, then we are allowed to have true relationship. And that is why God gives us that choice. Does that make sense? I'm getting no response. Okay, cool. Turn the page one, one over, or maybe two over, to get to John 11, depending on your Bible. Um, and we see another just really quick example of this same type of deal where God is using his power to reveal to us different elements of the problem of evil. Again, a story you're all familiar with. Verse, verse 1 of this chapter would tell us, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet, wow, that's loud, with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, when it says this sickness is not unto death, that's confusing at first, because if you're familiar with the story, Lazarus does die, albeit only for a little while. So when it says this sickness is not unto death, what it is saying is that all of this evil that is going on will not eventually lead to death having the final word. It will not lead to the struggle of life having the final say in it. Rather, it will lead to the glory of God having the final say in it. Since there is no inherent contradiction with an all-powerful, all-loving God in a world that exists with evil, because that contradiction is not there, we are very able to say that the death and pain and suffering will not eventually be for the sake of evil, will not give evil and death and suffering the last word, but very much has the ability to give God the last word. Our God is a redemptive mastermind. Our God is brilliant at looking through difficult, painful situations that on the outset don't make sense, and by the end of them, scream the God of the universe was here. Because that inherent contradiction does not exist, we're able to keep looking for those moments. On the intellectual end, there is no significant problem. It is okay for an all-powerful, all-loving God to exist while evil exists. There's nothing inherent against that. But that's not really our big problem. That's not really what grinds us the wrong way. It's the fact that when we look at it emotionally, we look at people that are dying and suffering and in all sorts of pain, and we sympathize with them and we feel that we're a little more sympathetic than God sometimes. We feel like maybe God just isn't looking at this situation. Maybe God just doesn't particularly care that much. There is a great emotional argument to be made about this as well. That is another one that we have to tackle. This emotional argument comes very starkly against the all-loving element of God. 
Now, here's the assumption that we make when we say that God is all-loving. We say that if, if, a truly, if a creature is truly loving, it would not want the object of its love to ever feel pain. That's the assumption that we make, that when a creature is truly all-loving, it would not want the object of its love to ever feel pain. I have a friend of mine that moved down south and went to a really big college down there and was surrounded by just brilliant people. And so the arguments that he was having with people about God were very intellectual. It was very, how can this work with this? How can that work with that? And then one day, he's sitting with one of his friends, who he told me was one of the most brilliant people that he ever met. And they're sitting across the table at a diner or something, and and the friend is looking down and he says, you know, I just, my big problem with God, and as he says this, my friend is like bracing for this deep intellectual moment. He's bracing for this How do I handle the deeper inner workings of this guy's mind? And he says, my problem with God is that if God loves me so much, why did my dad leave? Totally caught him off guard. Totally shocked him. But this is in many ways the real burden. Most people, when they are asking why does evil exist, they have something particular in mind. They have one moment where they say, where was God then? Where was God in this situation? The assumption is that an all-loving God would never want to see the object of his affection ever go through pain. And I would argue two things. I would argue first that pain that brings about a good is not seen as evil. Pain that brings about a good is not seen as evil. When I was very young, like under two years old, I had really bad asthma that had me in and out of the hospital five or six times, where just over the course of a very short time, there was just all sorts of, I woke, up one, I woke up one night and my parents didn't even know that I had asthma and I just wasn't really breathing. And then there was just the terrifying situation of going from there. Now imagine I'm tiny baby Brian sitting in a hospital crib, you know, getting pumped full of oxygen, getting pumped full of medication through IVs, crying because I'm crazy tired and I just want to go home, and my parents are watching me with nothing they can do about it. In that moment, if my parents were to say, this pain is too much, this is too difficult, and to pick me up from that crib and take me home, that would most certainly not be love. While it was painful for me in that moment, it was certainly most loving to have me go into that situation. While it was painful for one-year-old Brian to have the IV in his arm, even though everything in him wanted to rip it out, and though he probably did a couple times, even in that situation, what was most loving for my parents was to let me endure it, to let me keep going in it, so that what is right could come out of it. A famous preacher by the name of G.K. Chesterton said once, what is wrong in our world is that we don't ask what's right. What's wrong with our world is that we don't ask what's right. And when we don't have the target of right that we are aiming towards, every pain along the way just seems like needless suffering. But if it is working towards something greater, then there is good to be found in pain and suffering. To go along with this and to fight that assumption that a truly loving creature would not want the object of its love to ever feel pain, I would say that God in loving us must care very deeply about our nature 
and about making us holy. God has to care about that if he is truly loving. I think about it in this way, where I think about the way that you train a dog. Think about the way that you train a dog. What you're doing is you train a dog is you're taking all of its natural habits and tendencies and you're getting rid of them. You know, dogs naturally just pee wherever they want. You're getting rid of that in your dog. Dogs naturally smell terrible because they just go wherever they want and they do whatever they want. You're taking care of that when you bathe your dog. You are getting rid of the things that stand in the way of you loving that dog more completely so that you can love that dog. And God many times in allowing pain into our lives is chipping away at the nature that makes us less lovely. Is chipping away at the character that makes us less beautiful. And is chipping away at who we are so that we can be more like who he is. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, We may wish indeed that we were of so little account to God that he left us alone to our natural impulses, that he would give over trying to train us into something so unlike our natural selves. But once again, we are asking not for more love, but less. When we say, God, get rid of pain so that I can just be who I am. You know, I want to live the words of this generation spoken in the, in the years of Shakespeare to my own self be true. That's all that I want to do. And what we're saying to God in that moment is, God, I just wish you'd love me less. I just wish you would take out those moments that are difficult and that are painful, those struggles, so that I wouldn't have to change who I am. I'm sure that as the dog is being trained and as the dog is being bathed and as the dog is learning all of the new habits that it has to learn, in its tiny dog mind, it's saying, I don't really know if I like these people. They don't seem to like anything about me. And they're just putting me in all of these difficult circumstances. But once it has reached that point of being truly loved and seeing the benefits of the love that it receives, clearly it can see it as good. You see, we're trying to understand the whole timeline when we're standing in one moment of it. We're trying to understand why God is doing things over the course of our lifetimes when we're 14, 15, 16 years into it. When we have so much more to go and we simply can't see the end. Now in our feeling pain, we have to understand that our pain and difficulty do not mess with the plans of God. They don't thwart them. They don't throw them because God in his love is bringing about a great plan. Job realizes this at the end of his struggle. Job goes through all of the difficult things that he goes through. Loses his family, loses his house, has a wife that tells him to curse God and die, and has a bunch of friends that are just kind of dumb and just don't really know how to hang out with a guy that's grieving. He complains towards the Lord. God shows up and says, you want to talk about the way that I do things? Let's talk about the way that I do things. And for three chapters, says, Job, what do you really know? And at the end of that, Job in chapter 42 says, I know, God, that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. There is no moment where our pain is throwing off the plan of God. Think about even right from the beginning. Right in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, there was one choice to make. Eat the, eat the fruit and disobey God. Don't eat the fruit and obey God. Out of the one choice that they had with a 50-50 shot, they still got it wrong. And yet, 
that initial wrong, that initial allowance for death and pain to enter into the world, God used to bring about redemption. God used to bring about the system of buying us back from our sin. Even the very first evil has brought about incredible good. During Paul's life, there were many moments where the people that he was ministering to thought that the evils in his life were not helpful for anything. But in Philippians, he writes to them and says, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident in my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He says, guys, I know that you look at it and you see a guy who was put in prison for the wrong reasons. I look at it and see an incredible opportunity for the gospel to go forth. And as I'm watching the gospel go forward, as I'm watching my very chains inspire people to preach the word of God boldly, I can look at this wrong and I can call it good because I've seen good come out of it. God allows us to choose otherwise. But our ability to choose otherwise and to run from Him never throws His plans off because God has this brilliant way of taking really, really difficult situations and bringing them into something that glorifies Him. We see this in James chapter 1 where it says, let the testing of your faith produce patience so that patience may have its perfect work in you, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Implied at the very beginning of those verses is that there's testing coming, that there are difficulties coming. Now this is something that people also have a problem with. They would say, why would God test his people? God knows all things. God sees all things. He knows how it's going to go. Why does he have to test them and figure it out? Well, let me put it like this to you. When people propose to the person that they're going to marry, they're pretty confident of the answer going in. They don't go into that situation being like, man, I, I, I hope she says yes. I don't know. We'll find out. Like, if, if one of my friends came up to me and was like, bro, I'm going to propose to this girl. I have no idea what she's going to say. I'm like, you're an idiot and you need to stop right now. Like, that's what I would say to him. When you go into that conversation, you're pretty sure you know what's going to go down. Does that mean we should say, well, I know that she would say yes if I proposed to her, so I'm just not going to bother doing it because I know the outcome. No, it's in the fact that it actually happens that real things can go on. It's in the fact that the moment actually comes that everybody can figure out what it is that, went, that, that happened. In Romans 8, it would tell us, and we know this, that all things work together for good for those who love God to those who are called according to His purpose. In the midst of difficulty, in the midst of pain, in the midst of evil, in the midst of testings even, these things all work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purposes. If we have chosen again, yes, God, I know that sin has entered the world. I know that evil has come into it through sin. And I know that pain is coming. If we turn to Him anyway and we say, Lord, I'm Yours. Let's go for it. All of those difficulties, all of those struggles, not only do they work out to bring good, but they work out to make you more like Him. They have this refining element to them. In Job, it would tell us that Job was saying that when you work on the right hand and when you work on the left, I can't perceive you, but when I come through this testing, 
I will come out like gold, purified and beautiful. There is a refining that only comes with pain. There is a certain type of refining where you don't learn the lesson until you've been hurt by it. You don't learn the point until the point has been so deeply embedded in your soul that you can't help but learn it. Sometimes those are the only ways that we get these different lessons. The only ways that we get these images of God. And I would also say this about the all-loving nature of God in this problem. It's that many times in pain, we get to see significantly more of God. It's in our pains that we really get to figure out what God is like. We get to see him with our eyes and we get to experience what it is that he's truly about. In Psalm chapter 9, David tells us that the Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. When I think about one of the difficult situations in my own life, the one that comes to mind right away is the time where, when I was with uh, my girlfriend, what happened was she experienced breathing problems. And by that, she was just one night, she was trying to breathe, and it felt like the breaths weren't getting deep down and actually satisfying. They were very short breaths. They were very shallow breaths. There was nothing that she could do in that moment to stop that. And so I found this out after working a 12-hour shift at a restaurant. And so I get off work at 8, hear about this, go down, bring her to a hospital. They, they treat it like it's asthma. They think everything is going to be fine. I get back home at 3 in the morning. I head right back to the restaurant at 8. And I do another 12-hour shift. And as I'm driving home, I'm thinking, okay, Lord, that was, that was freaky. I don't really know what's going on. I don't really understand it. Because for me, that situation was tough because I was completely helpless. There's no way where I can say, oh, I know how to make you breathe again. Like, there's no way that I have anything to offer in that situation other than support and trying to say, listen, you don't have to be that scared when I was that scared myself. So driving back, I'm praying, Lord, you're good. You're working this out. You're doing good stuff in this. I trust you. Work another 12-hour shift at the restaurant. Get off, get another call from her saying that it's happening again. Drive back down to her house, bring her to a hospital, get her treated get home again at 3 in the morning. I'm driving home and I'm thinking, God, okay, I, I get that you're doing something. I know, like, I trust you, God. It's okay. Like, everything is going to work out. You're good. Go home, go to sleep at 3, wake up at 8, do another 12-hour shift, get another call at the end of the day. Drive down, bring her to the hospital, drive back. I am fuming. I am literally shouting in my car, God, what could you possibly be doing? I don't get this. I don't like this. This is difficult. This doesn't mean anything to anyone. It's just getting in our way. I don't know why you're choosing now. I don't know why you're choosing at all. And just for half an hour driving home, screaming all of these different things in my car by myself and watching that as I actually got honest before the Lord, he said, Brian, now you're ready to let me help you. Now you're ready to actually let me deal with your struggle. You've been spending all of this time telling me that it's okay. And so I've been spending all of my time telling you, okay, that's great. I'm, I'm glad you can handle it. Tell me when you can't, and I'll come and I'll help. I, I wrote a letter to a friend of mine a few months after everything was going on. And, and through this whole time, there were all sorts of difficulties that came with it. And I wrote to him, it seems we are reaching the struggle's end, but we cannot be certain. Either way, God is good, and I praise him for what he has done I have seen more of Jesus 
through pain and suffering than in joy or pleasure. I wrote that because I meant it. And it's because when I got through it and when I saw Jesus in that one ride home and carrying on, there was something about this, God is with me right now. God is with me in the midst of difficulty. God isn't waiting for it to be over so that he can show up. He's here at this moment. This is exactly what Paul told us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. When the thorn in the flesh is given to him and he pleads for God that it would go away from him and God says, my strength is perfect in your weakness. What he's saying is that pain is an instrument that God uses to burrow his truth so deep into our souls that we can never get rid of it. C.S. Lewis said that God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. If the best thing for us is God himself, and he is unwilling to hurt us a little bit to give us what is best, then can we call God loving at all? Instead, he's willing to give pain. He's willing to let difficulty happen so that in those moments, we can learn what he's truly about. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And this is the passage that I'll conclude on. Of evil doing its work. If we begin in verse 8, it would tell us this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of our Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. C.S. Lewis, all throughout the book, The Problem of Pain, talks about that what Christ is most looking for is the great act of self-submission, of putting ourselves under his will, putting ourselves beneath him and saying, Lord, you are greater. You are wiser. You are worthy of praise and glory and honor. I want to live my life giving that to you. And so for that, we carry about in the death of the Lord. We remind ourselves that our old lives are deadness. All of the pains and difficulties that came with them, they're deadness. And now as we are continually being killed through these different things, as we are continually experiencing these pains, we can look forward and say, because as I go through difficulty, the life of Christ is revealed in me. This is why God every once in a while has to show up and break stuff. This is why God every once in a while has to step in and allow difficult situations to come. It's why he has to allow pain because the worst thing that he can do for you is let you think that you're all right. The worst thing he can do for you is let you think that your life is fine. The worst thing he can do for this world is let them think that everything is okay, that they don't need anything when really they need to be forgiven and cleansed. C.S. Lewis says the dangers of apparent self-sufficiency explain why our Lord regards the vices of the feckless and dissipated so much more leniently than the vices that lead to worldly success. 
Prostitutes are in no danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. The proud, the avaricious, the self-righteous are in that danger. One of the greatest dangers in this world is the belief that we're all right. That we don't really need anything else. And when there is pain, when there is difficulty, there's that reminder of, this can't be it. There has to be more. This is not what we were intended for. There has to be something greater. By carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, we remind ourselves of that futility. And as the chapter goes on, it says, for we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you for all things are for your sakes that the grace or that grace having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God therefore we do not lose heart even though our outward man is perishing yet the inward man is being renewed day by day for our light affliction which is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. When you come through suffering and you've watched the work of God in it, you see the eternity in it. You see that God isn't just doing something in one moment, but He is building in you something that will last forever if you simply allow Him to do it. Pain is an incredible instrument used by God that brings about a future hope in what God will do in completing our salvation and bringing us to be with Him. Paul also wrote in another spot in Romans 8, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with, with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The pain we go through now, the difficulties that happen on this earth are the equivalent of one-year-old Brian receiving the oxygen and receiving the medication and hating it along the way. It was working in me a far greater good. And pain works into us a far greater hope that there is a good God who wants to do incredible things on the eternal scale. And God allows these pains to continue because when they don't continue, we go right back to our old thinking. We go right back to our moments of, I'm okay, everything's all right. I don't really need anything bigger than me. C.S. Lewis again put it like this, let God sheath that sword for a moment and I behave like a puppy when the hated bath is over. I shake myself as dry as I can and race off to reacquire my comfortable dirtiness if not in the nearest manure heap, at least in the nearest flower bed. And that is why the tribulations cannot cease until God either sees us remade or sees that our remaking is now hopeless. God allows these difficulties to come because when we're in them, there is this intense fellowship with God. There is this intense, God, you are near. 
when we are seeking Him. The Bible tells us that He is near to the brokenhearted, but then it seems that when we're not brokenhearted, when we're not worn down, when we're not run out, we shake ourselves as dry of all that as we can, of that incredible experience that we had with God, and we head right back to our nothingness, and we head right back to our dirtiness and our filth and our sin. The pain that God brings is designed to be a surgery. It is designed to be a surgery, but when we squirm beneath the knife, we have to understand that that's what brings about these terrible disasters that we see. That when we squirm beneath God's knife that is shaving away and reminding us of all of the things that we don't need and how rather we need Him, what we end up finding is that we're the ones that messed up the operation. We're the ones that messed up what God was doing. We took pain that He gave to carve away a little bit and we jumped at the moment the knife came near and we allowed Him to cut much more because we thought that more had to be cut. Or we didn't allow Him to do the small painful procedure. And because of that, now there is great work to be done making up for the mistakes that have happened. God uses pain as a beautiful instrument of refinement. And once you have watched that refine you, once you've watched yourself come through difficulty and say, now I know that the hope that I have in my Savior is real, that's your best defense to this question. That's your best defense to people who say, why would God allow pain? And would say, because I've watched God work in my pain. He has to allow it because that's what choice allows. Most of our pain is brought on by ourselves. We're a bunch of people running around, hurting each other and biting each other in the back, and then wondering why we've received the same marks. Most of our pain comes that way, and that is a nature of choice. If God is going to give us choice, he has to give us the opportunity to use it poorly doesn't limit his power. It's what he's chosen to do because his love demands relationship. Because he loves the fact that we are not just his subjects, but that he has called us friends. And that we have been welcomed into an incredible relationship with God. And we watch this evil happen and we watch it work into us this incredible, incredible hope. And many people are hurting without that hope. And that's what we seek to bring them. When you've watched the hope of our God be so burrowed into your soul that you can never deny it, then you're able to look at a lost, dying, and hopeless world and say, I, I, I know why this happens. I can't say why for every individual circumstance, but I get what your pain is pointing you towards. And it's that there is a God who is greater than your pain. Let's pray.